Truth Espresso, episode 244. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hey there, friends, family, foes, and lurkers alike. This is your host, Daniel Minnick, and we have my sweet, beautiful wife and co-host, Chelsea, here with me again. And we're going to talk about some of the recent Supreme Court rulings. In this episode, we want to get to the affirmative action case. So, sweetheart, thank you for doing this with me again. Thank you for having me join you again. So, uh, I want to call this episode or this discussion on these cases Supreme Court gesturing. <laughs> Not gesturing, but gesturing. Like, you know, have a court jester who's kind of a performer, a clown in the king's court. Well, playing off of that Supreme Court gesturing is what I would refer to as some of the justices in opposition to the decisions and how they try to argue things that set off red flags on my um, nonsense meter. <laughs> but So we're going to look at the cases in a little detail, get some quotes and observe how worldviews, how ideologies will interpret how people can view things even like the constitution or their understanding of morality. What we're dealing with, this actually is a pair of cases, and so basically the justices coupled them together because they have a similar issue at hand, and so these are the cases of Students for Fair Admission Incorporated versus President and Fellows of Harvard College, and then also Students for Fair Admission Incorporated versus University of North Carolina. So two different kind of higher education, upscale, traditionally universities there that some students felt they were being cheated out of admissions based on whether they had the merit to be able to be properly admitted to those colleges, but they felt they were being discriminated against because the colleges practiced certain admission policies that would favor some people over others, and it wasn't merit. So sweetheart, do you, you have anything to say or maybe a, a verse to bring up before we talk about um, these cases and the opinions and the dissents? So I was thinking that because these cases are kind of looking at how the 14th Amendment plays into this and just the whole idea of like equal protection and a verse that just comes to my mind when we think about the 14th Amendment, or at least when I do, um, is Galatians 3.20. 28, where it says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. So I just love that being in the body of Christ, there's no discrimination. Like we have that equality because we're children of God. 
And I think that biblical truth there can be seen in the 14th Amendment when you're looking at it from that biblical worldview, kind of like how you were mentioning earlier. You can try to make different constitutional amendments fit your agenda and like twist it and stuff. But when you are looking at truth and what the Constitution was based on, a lot of it was based on principles from God's Word and stuff that you can kind of see like, okay, this is where they're coming from. And you notice from Galatians 3.28, the Apostle Paul's argument there, when he says there is neither Jew nor Greek, he's not saying, well, those ethnicities didn't exist. He's saying, when it comes to who you are, those don't matter. There's neither bond nor free. Yeah, he's not saying, oh, all of a sudden everyone has the same economic status. He's saying it doesn't matter whether you are a servant or a free person. There's neither male nor female. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And that's important because, you know, he's not just saying you're all the same. He's saying your identity doesn't matter because your identity is found in Jesus Christ. And I think it would help the world if they recognize that principle instead of focusing on someone's identity, whether they're Jew or Greek or in America, whether one's, you know, so-called white, black, Asian, Hispanic, whatever like that, that that shouldn't matter except for how one's values are. And when we were Christians, our identity is in Jesus Christ, what he's done for us and what he has taught. And so that's what's important, not how I was born or certain unchangeable physical characteristics. And so that comes into play with these court cases here. So, both of these, the plaintiffs are students for fair admission, and they were two separate cases that kind of got tied into one because they're on similar issues, one against Harvard College and one against the University of North Carolina. And on June 29th, basically the issue was whether these colleges were acting constitutionally by using affirmative action filtering or principles to evaluate whether they can admit students, whether they honored the applications. And so traditionally, someone would say, look, I'm fit to be a student at this prestigious or challenging college because here are my grades from high school. Even here's some of my work experience. Here are some things I've done in my hobbies, whatever, something like that to demonstrate that you are an achiever. You have a a certain level of IQ that would make it so that you could go through the classes. You can learn from what the prestigious professors would teach. You can understand it, and the college would be proud of you for graduating, getting your degree, and as you go into the professions, you would kind of represent on your resume, well, I went to this college, and they would give the thumbs up and say, yeah, we're glad you went to us. And anything you do in your profession reflects proudly on the college that gave you the credentials. But that seems like things have changed over the last several decades. 
So, both of these cases, the topic whether affirmative action in colleges admissions is constitutional, it was determined by the conservative majority. So, in the Harvard case, it was six to two because Katanji Brown Jackson recused herself from that case. And then the University of North Carolina one was six to three. So, along ideological lines there, these rulings override a ruling in Grutter versus Bollinger in 2003 where that ruling favored affirmative action in college admissions but at the time things weren't as kind of race baiting as much as they are now they didn't have the critical race theory you know in the mainstream as you have now and at the time people thought that affirmative action was a temporary solution like okay we just need a little bit of a push disenfranchised minorities they just need this little help here for a time maybe 20 years or so and then by then everything would have leveled out and then we don't need affirmative action anymore so i just remember when i was going through my nurse midwifery program that they were very paranoid that the group i was with there were six of us in our group that none of us were of a different ethnicity than caucasian and they kept trying to (laughs) poke at us like do you have anything in your family history like from african-american or indian or something that we can put Because otherwise, they would lose their ability to offer a nurse midwife program. They had to have a certain ratio of Caucasians compared to other ethnicities. And I just remember, like, how awkward that was in talking with you about it, too. And it's like, okay, some professions, it might be a different proportion of some ethnicities than other professions. And there shouldn't be this control of trying to make it fit a certain way and trying to force people. Because there was this one poor girl, she was in a different program, but we did a couple classes together. And she was of a different ethnicity, but you could tell the only reason she was there was because of her ethnicity. Mm. She had a really hard time learning and comprehending the class material. And she would keep asking me questions of like how to do the homework assignments and all sorts of things. I was like, this is interesting. But I think as we talk through this case here and see some of the comments and stuff, they think they're helping people, but in the long run, it's actually harming people because you kind of mentioned like there's this controlling force thing going on here, this handout that they're trying to provide, but it's not a sustainable way of making it helpful for people. Yeah, and you can't just skirt the laws of supply and demand either because given the example there, uh, it's not to say that certain professions are only for certain ethnicities. Of course not. But if the demand isn't there, you can't produce it artificially. And also, if you end up with an influx of some ethnicities who really are not in it to win it, what if some of them that are in the ethnicity come up later on who really would be a good fit, but because they already got their quota, you know, like the ones that really shouldn't be in there get in there, and then the ones that should can't make it because they they miss the quota like it should be for those who seek it and are fit for things you know and not based on trying to put on a certain quota veneer there outcome based rather than productivity based and 
So in, in these cases here, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the affirmative ruling, the opinion there, and then Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote the dissenting opinion. There were other concurring and dissenting opinions, but Clarence Thomas wrote his own concurring opinion that was kind of like, I think, the most detailed and most well-articulated one, uh, while Justice Roberts' opinion for the court was well thought out and detailed, Thomas wanted to make sure that he added his arguments that he said was from an originalist understanding, so he wanted to make sure, okay, I want to get the really salient arguments in here too, and then Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, the newest one appointed by President Biden, wrote her own opposing opinion. So basically you have two African-American justices kind of at polar ends of this issue here arguing against each other. So, I'm going to get some quotes from the various opinions here and uh, kind of talk through it and see what we think about it. And so, Justice Roberts from the official affirmation opinion, uh, the ruling opinion says, The question presented is whether the admission systems used by Harvard College and UNC are lawful under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And then, officially, the ruling is held. Harvard's and UNC's admissions programs violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. So basically, the ruling, of course, is saying that affirmative action or race-based filtering for who could be admitted rather than qualifying criteria is not constitutional according to the 14th Amendment. Now, although we would side with the reasoning of these justices, I kind of want to put in my opinion as far as the 14th Amendment, what its original intent was, and of course my understanding of the role of government or lack thereof as it should be in what's called public education or universities. So, in my opinion, in a perfectly originalist constitutional country, all education and universities would be completely separate from the federal government's funding and control. So, there should be no such a thing as public education or publicly controlled or funded education, no public schools, no public universities. Now, these are originally private colleges, but the government has kind of its tentacles in it and stuff. So, in my view, a college would actually have the market freedom and the freedom of association under the First Amendment to admit or reject whom they desire. So that would sound in some ways like I would side with the dissenters, but I don't really. So that if the colleges have this freedom to admit or reject by virtue of freedom of association, they could benefit themselves or they could shoot themselves in the foot by how they choose to admit students. But naturally, I think even the free market and originalist constitution would naturally lead to colleges admitting students by their virtues and their hard work anyway, because those who would admit based on faulty criteria would end up going out of business, especially if they weren't funded by the government and controlled by government ideology. 
Now, I'll give some examples, <laughs> like kind of a thought experiment here. Like, so for instance, just as a university may provide only medical programs and you know, so their admission criteria would be anyone who would be interested in medical programs. And if it only admits students interested in medicine and a university should be able to call itself Women's College of Nursing and admit only women. So there can be a university in my worldview that's all only women and therefore they can reject male applicants. And also, as a nod to, you know, the minorities that the courts are talking about here, I think there should be allowed to be such a thing as a George Washington Carver University. And that as its criteria, it's a, well, you know, we named it after an African-American inventor. So, you know, we want this to be an all-black college. And so we are going to evaluate admissions according to that criteria. Like, I wouldn't have a problem with I think that the freedom of association should allow such a thing. You have any thoughts of this? <laughs> yeah, after hearing Whoopi Goldberg's response <laughs> to this, it's just so interesting because, I mean, kind of how you're describing with your examples here, the 14th Amendment is like allowing more freedom and opportunity for people. Hmm. But then like Whoopi Goldberg's thought on this ruling was that, okay, what's next? Are people going to start denying women from entering into universities? It's like, but wait, the 14th Amendment is trying to protect and say that you're not allowed to deny certain Mm. things to people. I mean, it just seems interesting that they're trying to make the 14th Amendment almost the opposite of what it is in place for. And so, yeah, I like your (laughs) examples there of, I mean, there can be specific schools for specific subjects, specific groups of people. Like it doesn't have to have this anyone and everyone has to go to (laughs) a certain school or get a certain degree that becomes the socialistic type of community like we would see over in Russia or some of the more tyrannical countries because in Russia you had no choice of what profession you would go into or what school you would go to the society would tell you oh you look like you're a dancer so you're going to go to the ballet theater even if that may not have been your choice they decided for you and it just seems like the way this type of thinking is going before this ruling took place is that they have to have a certain number of different races there. They have to have, you know, this whole setup that it's almost like they're handpicking. You're going to go here and study this. You're going to do this. And it's just heading down that mm-hmm. socialistic, tyrannical type of way to approach it. Yeah, so like we have to socially engineer and craft certain outcomes rather than just having the freedom of people to choose how they want to associate where they want to go to college and what they want to study. Now, I know this case is centered around how to interpret the 14th Amendment, 
I kind of brought up my view of things from the First Amendment, and the 14th Amendment is later, and the 14th Amendment historically had to do with preventing states from enslaving people. (laughs) But in my understanding, binding college admission to the 14th Amendment can pose other problems. So we have to recognize, even if this court's ruling is correct on moral grounds, the 14th Amendment can be weaponized, say, against Christianity. For instance, a devoutly Christian college that has a Christian statement of faith will likely deny admission to those who openly practice what are called alternate lifestyles, as well as not admitting those who hold significantly different doctrines from the college's statement of faith, like the college I went to might not admit someone who openly held to Roman Catholic doctrines, for instance. Now, they probably would admit them, but just say, unfortunately, you you know what you're getting into. You, we're not going to let you try to proselytize people. You, you can maintain your views and be admitted, but just be ready for what we teach and don't try to teach people and convert students and stuff. But some colleges, say like a college that might call itself a Baptist college, might want the student body all to identify as Baptist, and so that's how they would practice their admission criteria. And, you know, as I said, they wouldn't want to be forced on 14th Amendment grounds to have to admit people there who openly proclaim that they practice alternate lifestyles. So that is how the 14th Amendment can be weaponized there, and they should be able to have the right under the First Amendment to determine their admission criteria and not have to prove, well, yeah, the 14th Amendment stands, but please grant us a special religious exception that could be overturned by some law or a change in what qualifies as religious grounds or religious liberties. All that to say, you know, this isn't making me side with the dissenters, but given the system that we have, given that unfortunately we have public education, given that we have universities with government tentacles in there, getting government funding and government policy, since we have to deal with that system, then the least evil would be (laughs) the way the court ruled. And so that's why I'm going to side with the court's interpretation of the 14th Amendment. So if a university is going to be some kind of public institution, then it should be subject to the spirit and letter of the Constitution. Are you living an abundant life? Jesus came to give us eternal life, yes, but also an abundant life here and now, overflowing with the fruit of the Spirit. The Abundant Life Podcast encourages and challenges Christians to spiritual change and growth, by applying biblical principles to everyday life. Podcast hosts Sasso Mendez and Ben Ariano discuss various topics that are helpful for Christians and true to the scripture and bring a generous dose of humor. Visit AbundantLife.fm and subscribe to get notified of each new episode. That's AbundantLife.fm. So, in the ruling opinion written by Justice John Roberts, he says, Eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it. 
Accordingly, the court has held that the Equal Protection Clause applies without regard to any differences of race, of color, or of nationality. It is universal in its application, unquote. So, Justice Roberts should be credited for pointing out the obvious. Everyone on the court would propose that their ideology seeks to eliminate racial discrimination. But in the opinion of the court that basically college admissions should be colorblind, in essence, Roberts is saying, hey, if our goal is to eliminate racial discrimination, we have to be consistent and eliminate all of it. We can't practice racial discrimination in the name of eliminating racial discrimination. In other words, what we hear with critical race theory today, like terms like anti-racism or considering minorities attacking majorities as reverse racism, as it's called, like all of that is just simply racism. Racism is racism is racism, no matter who you are. And that's properly how to understand the 14th Amendment and the ideal of a colorblind society, because after all, wasn't it not Martin Luther? King Jr., who mentioned in his I Had a Dream speech that people would be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And when it comes to college admissions criteria, shouldn't it be by the content of their character, not the color of their skin? And you don't achieve his dreams by judging people by the color of their skin. Discrimination is not a one-way street, and according to history, if you look at it, the 14th Amendment was never intended to create a quota system or equal outcomes for groups. It simply meant that no individual should have different treatment under the law because of race. The 14th Amendment actually says no state, you know, referring to individual states of the Union, shall deprive someone of the right to life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And it's referring to the states, through their laws, should not deprive someone of the common application of laws, such as the individual rights. For example, voting, buying, or selling, starting a business, they should not be discriminated against based on their race. It didn't mean that discrimination would be in the form of, oh, look, if we admit people by means of their qualifications, then we end up with unequal outcomes. So that results in outcome discrimination. So we have to engineer things to get what we want. And that's what the 14th Amendment must mean in spirit. Like, nope, that's not what it meant. So I thought it was really interesting when you look at how the admissions process worked with Harvard. Like they had what they called an academic index. And that's where they would look at the test scores and GPA, but they'd also consider your race. So if you had very low academic scores and you were Asian, then you most likely were not going to get admitted to Harvard. But if you had the same exact scores as the Asian person, but your race was black, then you'd have a lot higher chance of getting into school. 
even higher than some of the more academically intelligent Asians. Like there was just this definite, I mean, when you look at the charts, you're just like, wow, that's crazy. You see that discrimination there, even though they're trying to say it's, they're trying to make it (laughs) non-discriminatory. It's like, it doesn't even make sense because college admission should not be based on the color of your skin. It should be based on how you're doing academically and what your goals are and what programs you're trying to get into. Those are like black and white things that you think would make sense to being admitted into a college or university. It was kind of evaluated based on, you know, like the statistics demonstrated that, say, like an African-American would have over 50% chance of getting admitted, right? And then an Asian-American would have pretty much like a 1% chance. And the dissenting opinion tried to argue that race was only one out of several qualifiers, like it wasn't the entirety. Well, it certainly played, according to the statistics, a very very significant factor there. Okay. I'm kind of scared to read Sotomayor. <laughs> so Sodom- Sotomayor wrote the dissenting opinion there. and <laughs> yeah. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment enshrines a guarantee of racial equality. The court long ago concluded that this guarantee can be enforced through race-conscious means in a society that is not, and has never been, colorblind. Today, this court stands in the way and rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress. It holds that race can no longer be used in a limited way in college admissions to achieve such critical benefits. In so holding, the court cements a superficial rule of colorblindness as a constitutional principle in an endemically segregated society where race has always mattered and continues to matter. The court subverts the constitutional guarantee of equal protection by further entrenching racial inequality in education, the very foundation of our democratic government and pluralistic society. so in other words she's arguing for racism (laughs) the ruling opinion would mention color blindness as a goal and they pointed out that was the intention of the 14th amendment but the dissenting opinion in the effort to heal racial divisions and racial inequalities basically push for perpetual racial discrimination and Sotomayor's dissent mentions color blindness several times as almost like a slur like oh these simple minded conservative justices they're trying to impose color blindness where our nation has never been color blind and apparently in their worldview never should be so I guess I'm a little bit confused about that because if we had never been color blind Why did we have to fight for slavery or fight for protection of Native Americans or protection for women or the unborn? Like, I don't know, there's so many different groups that were treated as inferior and we had to bring that forward and make it known that this isn't right. We need to treat them equally. And I just think that that's odd that she said that we had never been like that. 
never been colorblind because, yes, when it came to slavery and the black codes after the Reconstruction stuff that some states tried to implement to get around the 14th Amendment requirements that they wanted to deny things like voting and certain things for the African Americans after emancipation and stuff, that's what these dissenting justices would point out. Look, see, our history was always one of racial discrimination. Of course, we've made strides in recent years toward a more colorblind society. Like, I think when you're getting to the 1990s and early 2000s, I think that was, hey, we've really made good strides here in the vision that I would think Martin Luther King Jr. wanted a colorblind society as far as social criteria and stuff like that. But then it seemed like society was getting too colorblind for the leftists' tastes. You know, like, okay, there's so much progress there, and leftism, progressivism, always seems to thrive on pitting people against people because their goals are never, well, this is how we can build things. It's always, this is how we can take from some and give to another. You know, that's how progressivism always is. We always have to have wars between groups and we always have to pit class against class or ethnicity against ethnicity and so i think that's why eventually at the recent rise of things like critical race theory to try to stem the tide of color blindness and force racism back into the fabric of society well and with a socialist tyrannical type of society you have to have that superior inferior hierarchy for it to work. And so, like you said, trying to create that discontentment and that just inbreeding fighting amongst the people that makes that gap stay there where people can still be superior and you still have the inferior. Now, the people who are inferior can change often if it's, you know, depending on what will fit their agenda for that time. But it just, I mean, that's how it has to be when you're trying to be that dictator type of nation. And unfortunately, that's where you see our country has kind of gone down that slope. It seems like progressive thought progressivism can never build from the ground up uh, you know and can never achieve new things new improvements it's always a leech on society it is always a parasite it always assumes the necessity of real progress being there before and then it like a parasite it has to take over real achievement and all it knows is just how do i make promises to some people at the expense of others it's never adding to the pie and empowering everyone you know by allowing everyone their freedom it's always it's always like we have to redistribute we have to impose and force and pit people against people because what i see from this descending opinion from Sotomayor, the interpretation of equal protection of the law and the equality seems to imply equal outcomes rather than equal opportunity, which is what a true colorblind society in the 14th Amendment, I would think, would imply. Doesn't this remind you of the story of the Good Samaritan? Mm. Like all these other people that you would think would stop and help this poor person who's (laughs) injured and on the side of the road. You'd think, you know, the preacher, you think the 
was it the doctor or physician? There was the priest and the Levite. That walked by like that they would stop and help. But they're like, oh, no, this person is not of our culture. He's lower than us. We're not going to stoop down and help this person. And it's like the least person that you would think would come and help the Samaritan who came and helped. We don't know the identity of the person who fell among thieves. And I think that's important to know because the focus is on the Samaritan who helped, who was in a sense a minority in society and deemed, you know, an outcast because of half ethnicity there. And was like, he was colorblind. <laughs> yeah. He's like, there's this, he sees that person like in need and it doesn't matter like where he came from, what the color of his skin was, what educational background he had. That didn't matter. He just saw this person was in need and needed help. And he bent down and helped him and cared for him. And yeah. it's like, okay, if we were like that, how different would our society look instead of, mm. I liked how you said it earlier, babe, like just this constant pitting people against mm. each other because yeah. we're not stopping and looking at, wait, how can I help that person? It's always, how can I take from this person? How can I take from that group? And it's totally opposite of what we see in different examples in God's word. And I think that's why we see such a mess in our society right now. And Jesus asked his disciples, or they asked him, who is my neighbor? You know, or people today who follow this kind of line of thinking, if you ask them, who is your neighbor? They might want to ask well, what's their background? What's their ethnicity? That depends on whether I offer them help or not. So for some reason, when I think of the Good Samaritan story, <laughs> all I can think of is the Veggie Tales <laughs> song in there. The girls had recently watched that. So I'm like, all right, don't have Larry stuck in the hole upside down stuck in my head. Hey there, friends, family, foes, and lurkers alike. This is Daniel Minnick, the host of the Truth Espresso podcast on the Christian podcast community. And I want you to check out Voice of Reason Radio with Chris Honholtz and Richard Story. Chris and Rich are two guys with big hearts who will bring you a show every week that is sure to be challenging, encouraging, and biblical. Voice of Reason Radio with Chris Honholtz and Richard Story is part of the Christian podcast community. Check them out at slavetothekingcom That's slavetothekingcom And tell them Truth Espresso sent you. So I want to bring up Clarence Thomas. So just as Clarence Thomas also wrote a concurring opinion, so Roberts wrote the official ruling opinion, Sotomayor wrote kind of the aggregate dissenting opinion, but then Thomas wrote kind of a bombshell concurring opinion, and then Justice Jackson wrote her own dissenting opinion, and so Thomas references Jackson sometimes, and Sotomayor in his own. So there's kind of a quarrel between justices and how they're supporting or dissenting. So uh, Thomas, what I liked about him, and, you know, he's African-American, and he also gives a little bit of his own experiences being a minority and struggling as a minority. 
But Thomas gives a very good history lesson. He gives a detailed history lesson on the Reconstruction era. He also talks about how the 13th and 14th Amendments were formed and even how they were debated at the time of the Reconstruction era. Of course, he also talks about how Plessy versus Ferguson was overruled by Brown versus Board of Education to indicate that the equal protection of the laws doesn't necessarily mean, well, we have drinking fountains for whites and separate but equal drinking fountains for blacks. You know, the separate but equal is not the same as being equal. And then now, as this case overrules Grutter versus Bollinger, it's arguing that being race conscious is not the same as being equal. I like also what Thomas points out in his concurring opinion, where he says, quote, More fundamentally, it is not clear how racial diversity, as opposed to other forms of diversity, uniquely and independently advances Harvard's goal of diversity. This is particularly true because Harvard blinds itself to other forms of applicant diversity, such as religion. So it's like, okay, the whole purpose of this is to have a diverse student body. And I remember as I was reading this, he also asks, they don't explain why diversity per se is a goal. Like, does it improve the education of the student body and stuff like that? So why diversity? What makes that an accomplishment in particular? So he says, and again, UNC offers no reason why seeking a diverse society would not be equally supported by admitting individuals with diverse perspectives and backgrounds rather than varying skin pigmentation, unquote. So it's like, hey, if diversity is the goal, why is it only racial diversity? Why can't we have diversity of religions, diversity of various backgrounds, and just any kind of diversity you could come up with why is it only this one thing that matters thomas also because he's a very thorough arguer here he also challenges us that race is simply not a meaningful category for experience for which to enact policy goals because even though it seems like there's a lot read into race when it comes to the diversity here because there's a lot of assumptions that it entails a certain kind of life experience or culture and thomas even points that out he says, members of the same race do not all share the exact same experiences and viewpoints. Far from it. A black person from rural Alabama surely has different experiences than a black person from Manhattan or a black first-generation immigrant from Nigeria. In the same way that a white person from rural Vermont has a different perspective than a white person from Houston, Texas. So, like, okay, skin pigmentation still does doesn't make everyone who has it share a lot of the same stuff by which you can determine diversity. So, and then he says, rather than forming a more pluralistic society, these policies thus strip us of our individuality and undermine the very diversity of thought that universities purport to seek. 
So that's an interesting thought. Like, it's not like all blacks are the same type of person and all whites are the same type of person. There's all kinds of different experiences and subcultures and regional cultures when it comes to people who might share the same or similar skin pigmentation. So... <laughs> I get to read Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> so this is Katanji Brown Jackson, the I'm not a biologist justice who couldn't define what a woman is. And she's going to argue that we have to know who someone is and be able to filter admission criteria uh, according to ethnicity. But she can't define a woman. But yeah. <laughs> So what does Justice Jackson say in her own dissenting opinion? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good boy. Okay, so her quote is, With let them eat cake obliviousness today, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. But deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. No one benefits from ignorance. Although formal race-linked legal barriers are gone, race still matters to the lived experience of all Americans in innumerable ways, and today's ruling makes things worse, not better. The best that can be said of the majority's perspective is that it proceeds, ostrich-like, from the hope that preventing consideration of race will end racism. So is she basically saying you have to be racist to fight racism? We can't end racism with colorblindness and that to so-called impose colorblindness by legal fiat is kind of like sticking your head in the sand like an ostrich (laughs) and avoiding the real problems, you know, because you have to be conscious of all the races of people. And I don't mean to make fun, but it's just kind of odd that she says no one benefits from ignorance. And yet, like you mentioned earlier, she's not able to define what a woman is. <laughs> it's just kind of strange that she's like ignorant herself. And then she says that no one benefits from ignorance. And, <laughs> Which, yeah. of course, to the justice who can't define what a woman is precisely because we have to recognize so-called trans people that, you know, you could be a male trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a male body or whatever, any number of genders and stuff. Well, why can't someone claim to be a black trapped in a white body and be treated as African-American or so on like that? Why is it that somehow skin pigmentation is a much more determining factor of identity than gender? Of course, they don't want to ask and answer questions like that. But There's all kinds of things we can quote and read from these various opinions. But of course, the Biden administration was not shy about uh, voicing their disgust with the ruling and how it overthrows affirmative actions, at least with regard to college admissions, but it also has the precedent that, well, what about other venues? Couldn't the same arguments be made there? So basically it has the effect of making it really difficult for affirmative action to prevail without being challenged. Now, after President Joe Biden gave a statement about the ruling and is discussed with it, a reporter asked him if this was a rogue court. 
right when he was going to, you know, he was leaving. He had the door open. He was about to leave. And then he kind of had to turn around and was forced to reply, basically. And he said, this is not a normal court. So we'll play that clip. President Biden, the Congressional Black Caucus of the Supreme Court has thrown into question its own legitimacy. Is this a rogue court? This is not a normal court. Should there be term limits for the justices, sir? This is not a normal court. You know, it's not normal because a normal court would mean everyone there, all nine justices would be clones of Katanji Brown Jackson. That would be a normal court in Biden's understanding, right? (laughs) (laughs) You can't have a court that has a conservative majority who actually can argue from history and actually can interpret the amendments to the Constitution in a way that makes sense with the original intent and be a normal court. <laughs> it's kind of scary to think, okay, what is a normal court in his opinion then? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially with, you know, think of all the nominees that he's tried to get through and just how radically leftist they are. You know, that's normal in his understanding. Well, just from the few video clips we've seen recently of some of the staff that he has, <laughs> no one would come to a decision because if they can't answer a question, they just all get up and walk out of the room. <laughs> so we would oh, have yeah. no rulings, I think. <laughs> Green John Prier and John Kirby and how they've had to close up the binder and say, uh, have a good day and run out with their tail between their legs, basically. Yeah, that That's a normal administration right there. <laughs> So, the court's uh, ruling here that true 14th Amendment interpretation would not properly be understood to discriminate based on race for the purpose of eliminating racial discrimination. So, have some verses. Proverbs 24, verses 23 through 25, that seem fitting to me. It says, These things also belong to the wise. It is not good to have respect of persons in judgment. He that saith unto the wicked, Thou art righteous, him shall the people curse, nations shall abhor him. But to them that rebuke him shall be delight, and a good blessing shall come upon them. So if we want our nation to be blessed, then let's not have respect of persons in judgment. We don't treat wicked as righteous or people according to skin color, but according to the content of their character. And just as you mentioned, we are with Galatians 3.28, you know, when we look at Christ as our example and as our identity, we would be truly colorblind because none of that matters. God created us all. We should be proud of how he created us, but not in a way that pits us against each other, but to realize God creates diverse people for his glory, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. And so, Hope that you know you enjoyed our analysis of these rulings here, and that we can strive 
for having a, a more just society and one that can once and for all get rid of unnecessary discrimination based on unchangeable physical characteristics and that we can evaluate people based on their efforts and their virtues and that we can be free to strive to be the best we can be and not focus on ourselves and our identity. And so stay tuned for the next episode of Truth Espresso and God bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.